So this is the point in the service where we have written down that we're going to do a children's sermon. And you know what? We have no kids this morning because they're all at home. So there were two options. Number one, I thought I should stand up here and say, okay, everybody who's immature, come up here and sit on the front row. And, well, okay, Joe's, Joe's all right. But then I thought, no, nah, I probably don't want to make people identify that way. And so, anyway, we're just going to skip the children's sermon this morning and get into the message. Um, Romans chapter 1 is the passage for this morning. It's on page 1708 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, we've got a lot of different verses to look at this morning. And so I want you to have your Bibles open to kind of follow along because we've got a lot of things to, uh, to talk about this morning. Romans chapter 1 as we get into the Word. So if you, if, you looked at your, um, if you looked at your bulletin this morning and you saw the passage was Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, you thought, okay, well, it's going to take us 20 minutes just to do the scripture reading. And that's why, so as I, I shared last week, we're going through the first eight chapters of Romans because this is uh, the Bible's clearest explanation. Okay, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What is it, what is it that God has done for us? And so we're going to go through this, in, as I said, in seven sermons. So it's eight chapters and seven sermons. And this morning, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, all kind of comes, brings, it brings up several things, but it brings up one basic idea. And so we're going to handle this. I'm not going to read it up front because it would take a really long time, but we're going to go through the, a large amount of, of these verses uh, going through to, to talk about the main ideas that he brings out. So the sermon title this morning is The Starting Point of Salvation. So last week we kind of dealt with the summary of, okay, here's kind of the big thing he's going to be talking about. And this morning we're getting into, okay, now that we're plotting out what the gospel looks like and what exactly it means that God has come into the world and done something, um, okay, where do we start? And it's not the place that we would think that God would start, and it's certainly not the place that we want him to start. And so I want to ask you as I get started this morning and begin, the first point we're going to make this morning is an unpopular point. But I want you to stick with me because by the end it's going to, I think, if I do a good job, I think it's going to make sense. But, but the starting point that we, that we begin at is, is one that a lot of people struggle with, especially in the culture in which we live today. It's just a very unpopular idea. But I think if we follow Paul accurately, I think it's going to make sense by the end. So, so, um, so stick with me. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 18. I just want to look at, at, this is the beginning of the part that we're talking about. And he starts with these four words, the wrath of God. And so if you have your sermon outline this morning, let's follow along there. What is the big question Paul is starting with? And the, the answer is, is the wrath of God justified? Is the wrath of God justified? So the wrath of God is another phrase that would use that would bring forth the idea of God that God is bringing judgment, or that we are, we've fallen short. And, and because of that, you know, there, there's going to be judgment that's going to come. And so where Paul is going to start is, are we, are we guilty? Is there something where God looks upon us and he says, you guys aren't measuring up the way that, that I want you to? Now let me acknowledge, as I said just a moment ago, the, the, the biblical answer, which is going to be, yeah, we have fallen short, is not at all a popular answer in our culture because what we put forward today so often in our culture is, you know, well, here's the excuse of, of why I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm pursuing what I'm pursuing. Or, you know, well, I don't really think, it, you know, that's wrong or this is wrong. Um, and so a lot of times we are very good as a culture at justifying, 
you know, where I'm at and, and what I want to do. And so as Paul is putting forward this idea, the, the, he, he's starting out with, um, with where we are in relationship to God. And we have to start here in order to get where God eventually wants us to be. Um, to unpack this idea fully, I'm, I'm going to divide this passage up into a few parts. Um, and the way that Paul lays this out, I'm going to be very brief, but there are kind of six parts to this as we, uh, as we go through this. And so let's kind of let's deal with his argument. The first part of his argument is this. The existence of God and the truth of God are obvious. The existence of God and the truth of God are obvious. Look at um, 19 and 20 with me. So he started out with the phrase, the wrath of God. Um, look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. What he's arguing here is the idea that even if you've never read a Bible before, let's put the Bible aside, even if you've never heard of Jesus Christ, the idea is that the existence of God can be easily understood from the world that we see around us. There's two things in particular as you look at verse 20. There's two things in particular. Look there, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. His eternal power and divine nature. That would be the two phrases I use there, the existence of God and the truth of God. So, when you look around, I don't know about you, this is the way that I kind of take it. Um, somebody was mentioned in this in, in Sunday school this morning. When, when, when I walk outside at night and I look up at the stars and I know that I live in a universe that is infinitely vast and that, there are, that, that the light that is, I'm seeing isn't even like the light that's actually shining now. That's light that took off, you know, maybe a thousand years ago and is just now making it to earth because the universe, even with light traveling at light speed, it takes that long for it to get here. When I think of the vastness of the universe um, and I think of how small I am, I believe that there's somebody bigger than us. And, and that, to me, is not something that's difficult to, to, to comprehend. You know, as, as I think of the vastness of the universe, the idea that there is a being infinitely powerful, more powerful than me, it just makes sense to me. When I look at the complexity of the world, let's take an easy example. When you look at the, at the way, um, let's pick a really easy example. When you look at the Little Coal River, and nobody's in charge of that, like there's not a department of the Little Coal River, and yet day after day and week after week, it just keeps flowing, doesn't it? It just keeps flowing. Um, if you compare that to if we put the government in charge of the Little Coal River, how, you know, we'd be dry in two weeks, wouldn't we? And yet, like, you know, it just keeps out. Why? Because the way that God created the world all those things, you know, the water goes up into the clouds and it comes down, it goes back to the ocean, it goes back up. You know, God is infinitely powerful and God has done all those things. It also mentions there in, in that verse, it says, um, and his divine nature. What's talking about there is that, that there is, you know, there's something different about God. And in particular there, as we think about that, you know, if, 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 there, is, if, if there is something within me as I look at uh, my life, and I think, I'm not, I'm not the way I want to be. There's a yearning for something higher 
that points me to the fact that the being that, I, that is bigger than me and more powerful than me is also good. He is a good God because there is something within me that wants to be different than I am now. Now, as you think about that, that leads us to the second thing, which is right after that. And that is, number two, in rejecting God, man settled into futility and darkness. In rejecting God, man settled into futility and darkness. So if we believe that there is a God, we also believe the idea that, that you know, in general, we have rejected God and, and said, I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. As you look at verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, and that goes back to they're not saying that they knew the Bible, they're saying that they knew through the infiniteness of creation and, and through the truth of God, or and through the divine nature of God, they knew there was somebody out there. They knew there was a God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. What's that mean? It means when I reject God, if God is infinitely powerful and infinitely good, and I reject Him and I say, okay, there may be a God like that, but I don't want to invite Him into my life, what's going to happen? It's what it says right there. Your thinking is going to become futile and your foolish hearts are going to become darkened. And so our thinking becomes futile. What does that mean? It means we begin to think things that don't totally make sense. Um, what's one example of that? An example of that would be, um, let's take the golf course, Riverview Golf Course. So there used to be a golf course out there and it was being cared for and it looked like a nice golf course as you drove by and, and you went out there and played. It, you, know, it, you could tell it was a golf course. And now it went out of business and, and they've been doing nothing to it. It's just been grown up. And so when I go out there now, it's just a field full of weeds. Now, if I were to go out there and all of a sudden tomorrow, I drive out there and it is a beautiful golf course again. Like the greens are manicured and there's fairways and all that. How silly would I have to be to go out there and see that and think, I think that happened randomly. I just think that the grass all became that way randomly. It just, you know, if you have enough chances, that, that's just going to randomly happen. And yet, that's what we're told to believe about the way that the world came, about the existence that we, the, the, of how we came about. There, there is no God. We weren't created. But we just, you know, randomly showed up here. We were amoebas that became this, became this, became this. And now we're human beings. That doesn't make any more sense than the idea of me going out and a golf course miraculously sprung up when nobody had done anything there. But we're told to believe that. Why are we told to believe that? What's verse 21 say? Their thinking became what? Futile. To think that something came from nothing is a futile way to think. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they, uh, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to, made to look like mortal human being, uh, being a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So when we reject God, there is an impact, and that impact is that we, we descended in, our thinking became futile, and our hearts became darkened. That leads me to the third thing, and that's this. Uh, since that's what they wanted, God gave them over to it. Since that's what they wanted, God gave them over to it. So when we, um, when we say, okay, I, 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 I recognize that there's a God out there somewhere, but I don't want him in my life, 
and our thinking becomes futile and our hearts become darkened, if we continue in that long enough, God tries to pull us back. God tries to draw us to himself. If we keep saying, God, I don't want you. God, I don't want you. God, I don't want you. There is a point where he, he gives us over to the consequences of what we've said that we wanted. Look at 24 um, through 27. Now, just 24 and 25. Let's look at that. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So the way that this happens, and this, I mean, it just kind of makes sense, is that if you reject God long enough and if you say, I don't want Him, then there comes a point where God's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to allow, you know, that if that's what you want, then you can continue in that. And so he gives them over to that. And so rather than the situation getting better, we just get, we as, a, as, as people get deeper into our sin and we get deeper into the mess that we've made. We get deeper into what, um, what we shouldn't be in. And, and sometimes um, it's not until we get deep into our sin that we stop and we look around and we're like, man, this is a mess. And it, sometimes it's at that point that we recognize we need something else. But... God will not forever continue to try to draw us back. There's a point where he allows us to go into the consequences of our sin and gives us over to that. Now, we need to get into, these are going to take a little bit longer. The first part was a little bit, um, a little bit easier. But I want you to flip down with me to Romans chapter 2. And, and so he's kind of laid out here at the beginning th this idea of us, of us, recognizing that there is a God out there somewhere, but pursuing our own sin and, and wanting, and then God kind of giving us over to that. Um, what does that have to do with the thing that I started with? Well, that's what chapter 2, the beginning of that, tells us. Number four is this. All of this wipes out our excuses. All of this wipes out our excuses. So if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, let me pause for a second and note there. So the way that this often works up to this point is that when it comes to sin, and we as Christians are really bad about this, um, when it comes to the chapter 1 um, and God talking about sin, we're really good about saying, that's right, he's doing this, or she's doing that, or he's doing that. And we're really good about looking at other people and pointing out their sin and what they're doing wrong. But look at what chapter 2, verse 1 starts with. You, therefore, have no excuse... You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourselves, because you, pass you who pass judgment do the same things. What is he saying? The point he's making here is that we are quick to look at other people and condemn them and, and say what they're doing is bad. But when, we, when I look at somebody else and I say, oh, I can't believe what, you know, man, he is so full of pride. But the reality is there's pride in my own life. When, when we look at somebody else and say, oh, I, I can't believe what, what they're doing in terms of, of sexual sin, but there's lustful thoughts in my own mind. When we look around at everybody else and we say, you know, oh, I can't believe what they're doing, but the reality is that either outwardly or in the recesses of our own heart and our own mind, we are thinking and doing the same things. You know, it's easy for us to go back over here to look at everybody else and say, you know, God, you know, what they're doing is wrong, what he's doing wrong, what she's doing wrong. It's easy for us to look around and condemn everybody else. The problem with that is that when I stop and really think about it and dwell on it, 
I've had the same thoughts. I've done the same things. may not be the exact same things, but there are sinful thoughts in my mind and, and in my heart that have helped me to have to realize, chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. This is one reason why we as Christians, I don't understand why we are, why we act judgmental sometimes. Because we as Christians of all people, we shouldn't look at anybody else and be judgmental because the reality is, I know I fall short too. I know I don't measure up as well. Continuing on in, in, uh, in that verse, verse 2 there. Now, we know that God's judgments against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? When we look at others and we recognize we've fallen short as well, we're, it puts us in a bad spot. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you toward repentance. What's he saying there? He's saying that when we look around and we recognize, okay, I am guilty, I've done the things that other people have done, and yet God hasn't come and taken me out yet, that's not because God is saying, it doesn't matter, whatever you do, you do whatever, it doesn't matter. It's because God is being gentle toward us, He's being kind toward us, with the hope that that will lead us toward repentance. Look at verse 5. It says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, he's speaking to us now, you are storing up wrath for yourself on, for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Let's pause there for a second. And I want to... So, when we think about what I said a moment ago, we look around and, and we see other people doing things, you know, oh, what she did is wrong, what he did is wrong. And we look at that and we're like, you know, I wish God would judge that person. I wish God would take care of that person because what they're doing is wrong. But then, chapter 2, verse 1, I start to realize, wait a second, I've done those same things. I've done similar things. I have thoughts in my mind that shouldn't be there. And so, as we think about that, it leads us to an understanding. One of the things we will say over here, and I want to get back to verse 5 here in a second, is... When, when, when somebody does something that's wrong and then judgment doesn't fall immediately on them, we're like, you know what? I wish, I just wish that God was fair. I just wish that he was fair. And when somebody did something wrong, there was judgment that came on that. I wish God was fair. When we understand what chapter 2 verse 1 says and what's following, instead of looking at other people and judging them and saying, I wish God was fair because what that person is doing wrong and they deserve judgment, when I realize that I have sinned myself and I've fallen short myself, the thing we begin to realize, going to verse 5 there, is this. I don't want God to be fair. That's a horrible thing to say, Jim. Why would you say that? Because listen, it's one thing if I'm perfect and I look around at somebody else and say, oh, what they're doing is wrong. I wish God was fair. They need to get what they deserve. On the other hand, Chapter 2, verse 1, if I look and realize I've messed up too and I've fallen short too and I'm not where I need to be, if, if Jim Butcher received a fair judgment from God, you have no idea how much trouble I would be in. 
I don't want a fair judgment from God. Why? Because I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know there's thoughts in my mind and things in my heart that shouldn't have been there. I know how far short I've fallen. I don't want a judgment from God that's fair. I want a judgment from God that's merciful. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And that's why it doesn't make any sense. Why are we so judgmental looking at other people and acting like they're horrible when the reality is I'm a horrible person too. I've fallen short too. And therefore, to go to chapter five, chapter 2, verse 5, because of, this, this, because of the stubbornness of your heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath uh, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. That scares the life out of me. And it should scare the life out of you. If the, if the only hope I have when I, and of course, thankfully, there's a greater hope, but if the only hope I have going forward, if the only hope I have when I come before God someday is that I am a perfect person and have measured up to his standards, and he's going to look at me and say, Jim, you did everything perfect, never had a lustful thought, never had a prideful thought, never were envious, never uh, gossiped, none of those things. You have done everything right. You can come into my kingdom. I have no chance. None. Because I know I've messed up. And so he's telling us there that as we think about ourselves, we don't look at that and say, I hope God is fair in his judgment. When I look at what's in my heart, I hope God is merciful. Because I know I've fallen short. Now this is where we're starting to get into the reality of, of where we're in trouble. It's not just other people that are in trouble. We're in trouble. And then... He goes from there and talks about, okay, now, if you, once you start to recognize you're in trouble, then the next step is, okay, well, what, what does God want from us? Look at, um, look at down at verse, um, verses 28 and 29. Now, let me give you the point, and then, and then we'll get into what he says there. So what God wants is of the heart by the Spirit. What God wants is of the heart by the by the Spirit. So verse 28, still in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says this, a person is not a Jew, he, he's been talking, we didn't read this because we don't have time, he's been talking about a little bit about um, the, the nature of being a Jew uh, and them being God's people in the Old Testament and all that. And of course the sign in the Old Testament was circumcision, so he's going to use that in a spiritual way now. Uh, a, a person who is not a Jew, I'm, I'm sorry, a person is not a Jew who is only who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision, here it is, of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So what God wants here, what he, he's, he's telegraphing where we're going to go later. What he's saying here is, I, I don't want people who are pretending to be righteous. They're secretly a disaster, but they're pretending to be righteous. What I'm, what I'm heading you toward is I want to make a change in your life where the transformation of who you are is of the heart. It's not an outward change. It's an inward change. It's going to happen by the Spirit. We'll talk about that later in the sermon series. But it's of the heart. I want you to be genuinely transformed. Um, I read a thing years ago of... Um, they were talking about doctors who did uh, bypass surgeries, heart doctors who did bypass surgeries. And, and what you would kind of think is, you know, bypass surgery is an enormously invasive, painful, expensive process. And so you would think coming out of that surgery that you would, you would say, 
okay, listen, I never want to do that again, so I'm going to make massive changes to my life. And what they found was coming at people that had bypass surgery, over 90% make zero changes to their habits and lifestyle. They just keep doing what they've always done, and they end up in the same mess they were before. What God is saying here when we're going to get into this is he's not just saying, listen, I'm going to do something so that, you know, I, we'll, we'll, we'll somehow make this so it's okay. And then you're just going to keep going on and keep doing the same things you did before. I want no lifestyle changes. I don't want anything different. God wants to make a change at the level of the heart. He wants to change our heart. And it's going to happen by the Spirit. Now, as you think about all this, where does this lead us? Um, as you hop down to chapter 3 and verse 9, and this is what I'm going to quit on this morning, and, and so we're just at the beginning. We have a ton to go about you know, what Jesus has done, and, and you guys know, obviously, Jesus is going to be the means by which God is, gonna, is going to um, uh, make the transformation. But chapter 3, verse 9, um, and, and this goes back to what I said at the beginning. Where we end this morning is, and this has to be, for a reason I'm going to explain in a second, this has to be the starting point for us to be able to get to where God wants us to be. Chapter 3, verse 9. Listen, nobody likes this. All right, this is, Paul wrote this. No one likes this. This is terrible. But this is what he wrote. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Let's pause for a second. He's about to conclude the whole first part from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way over here. He's making his opening point. And here's the conclusion of his opening point. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage at all talking about uh, the Jewish people over, um, over the Gentiles uh, if the Old Testament system was effective? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. If you have your sermon outline, this is what we're going to conclude on this morning. That leads to an important conclusion, which is that we are all sinners. That we are all sinners. So as you look at verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This is a wildly different place. Let's go back to the beginning for a second. What I want to say, and this feels so much better, is, okay, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than Bill Cook. So, you know, I'm, I'm a step better. Or, you know, another way to say it would be, well, you know, I, I think when you weigh out, you know, my good and my bad, I'm like 51% good and 49% bad, so, so I'm okay. And those are the standards we want to use, and that's what our culture puts forward is, well, you know, at least I'm not like so-and-so, or I'm, I'm overall a little bit better. But where the Bible is starting us is verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. He, he starts us with the reality, not of, let's see how we can justify what you're doing and make you feel better about yourself. He starts us with the reality that I am a sinner. Look down at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so the reality of the Old Testament, what the law ended up bringing was not salvation, but instead it brought the reality that I am distant from God. Now, to, to, 
we're obviously going to go in the direction of Jesus after this. But here's why this is important. And some of you guys have heard me say this before, but this is so crucial. Um, if we don't start with this point, Jim Butcher is a sinner. On the wall behind me, there's a cross. And we believe that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, came into the world and the, he taught that he, he ended up being killed on a cross and shedding his blood for our sin. And, and as he shed his blood for our sin, again, we're getting into what we're going to be talking about later in the sermon series, as he shed his blood for my sin, that there's an opportunity for salvation through him. We believe that through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that God opened up a door for me to be able to have salvation. But as I look at Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross is not a symbol. Jesus on the cross is a solution. What's it a solution to? It's a solution to the fact that Jim Butcher's a sinner and he can't fix it. Jim Butcher is a sinner and he can't make himself righteous. Jim Butcher's a sinner and he can't get right with God. Anything that he tries is going to fall short. And so I need something different. And I need, we're going to get into what exactly Jesus did, but I need Jesus' sacrifice. But before I, I get into that, as I think about Jesus dying on the cross, I cannot fully fathom and cannot understand that Jesus went to the cross and what that means and why that's important if I don't start here. Jesus went to the cross because I'm a sinner. We can't start with, I'm a good person. That, then if I'm a good person, then Jesus didn't know to the, need to go to the cross because I could just be a good person and go to heaven. We have to start, if Jesus is going to the cross and he thinks that's necessary and important, I have to start with this. Jesus is going to the cross because I'm not a good person. Jesus is going to the cross because I have fallen short. I'm a sinner. And I need someone to save me. And Jesus is the one who comes into our mess and saves us. But we have to start in our hearts with the reality that I am a mess. Let's pray. Father, I, it is not a, a fun thing to acknowledge. It's not a fun thing to confess. But I recognize and acknowledge this morning, Father, that in my natural state, I am a sinner. And Father, I thank you that years ago, in recognizing that, that I turned to Jesus and asked for him to come into my life and make me something different. And Father, I pray this morning as we come before your throne, I'm thankful the offer's still there. And I'm thankful that you're still willing to come into our lives. But it has to start with us acknowledging that we've fallen short. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anybody here that, like me all those years ago, simply wants to say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. I pray that this morning may be the morning when they recognize their need and they receive Him into their lives. I thank you that Jesus came to earth for people like me. 
sinners in need of your mercy. I pray in Jesus' name.